We turn in our Bibles to Matthew 22. We're going to read the parable of the wedding feast, which is Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Let me read this in connection with Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away. And cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We read God's word that far. Let's consider the teaching of the Catechism in Lord's Day 30. Last Sunday we considered Lord's Day 26. So we would have been doing 27 today, but I decided to jump ahead in this as well, since Lord's Day 30 pertains well to the occasion of preparatory today. So we'll go back to Lord's Day 27 soon. Let's consider Lord's Day 30 today. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. 
and further that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them so that the mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the faith by which we become partakers of Christ and all his benefits we have seen in recent Lord's days is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel and confirmed by the use of the sacraments. And next Sunday, the Lord willing, we will have the privilege of celebrating one of those sacraments, the Lord's Supper, in our morning worship service. Therefore, this is a preparatory worship service in which God calls us to examine ourselves whether we are coming to the marriage supper of his son, to use the figurative language of the parable, with the wedding garment that the king has given to us or in our own filthy rags. We are to examine ourselves. The sermon this afternoon aims to direct us in that examination. At the same time, preparatory serves to warn, to use the language of the catechism we just read, hypocrites and those who do not turn to God with a sincere heart and those who are ungodly and unbelieving, that they ought not to come to the table of the Lord, but that they ought to repent. Because if they come to the table as hypocrites, as impenitents, as ungodly people, the scriptures say that they will eat and drink judgment to themselves because they become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But the preparatory worship service is also a good time for us to be reminded of the sacredness of the Lord's Supper as a holy supper of our Lord, And therefore, as the Catechism has showed, also the great dreadfulness and the fearful consequences for the church that profanes the table of the Lord by allowing to come to the table anyone who wants to, including the unbelieving and ungodly. It's a good time as well for us to be reminded that 
as we read in the form for the Lord's Supper, this is not designed, dearly beloved brethren and sisters in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the table except those who have no sin, because we don't come to the table to testify that we have no sin, but we come testifying that we are sinners, that we have many great and terrible sins, and that the only worthiness we have to come is that God has given us a wedding garment through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper. Notice, first of all, the uh, understanding the sacredness of the Supper. Secondly, coming to the Supper in the proper way. Thirdly, guarding the Supper from the ungodly. The Lord's Supper is a holy sacrament, and the Catechism has shown us that a sacrament is a holy sign and seal. The Lord's Supper is a holy celebration, a sacred meal of the covenant of grace, and that is why the Lord's Supper is not open to everyone, but reserved for Christians who, by their confession and life, show themselves to be Christians. What exactly is the sacredness of the Lord's Supper? Why is the Lord's Supper so sacred? And first of all, I want to speak now of the Popish Mass and what Rome thinks about the sacredness of the Supper, and then we will notice the Reformed understanding of the sacredness of the Lord's Supper. So first of all, the sacredness of the Lord's Supper is not due to the fact that in the Holy Supper, a priest actually offers up on an altar in the church the Lord Jesus Christ himself as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. That is not why the Holy Supper is sacred. The Popish Mass, because of this doctrine, tends to think of itself as being more sacred than the cross of Christ itself. If you ask them which is more holy, which is more sacred, the cross of Jesus or the Mass, probably they would say the right thing. But in practice, the Mass becomes more important, more sacred, more precious, because in the Mass, they have there a repetition, an unbloody repetition, they think, of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. They truly believe and teach that the Holy Supper is not a supper of remembrance merely, but a sacrifice, a repetition of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. That's why they call their pastors priests. That's why they call the table an altar. And that's why they speak of the Mass as a sacrifice. They believe, as the Catechism teaches us here, that the living and the dead, that is, Christians who are alive and Christians who have died, cannot have the pardon of their sins unless Christ is continually, daily, repeatedly offered up for them by the priest on the altar in the cathedral. If that doesn't take place, even though Jesus died on the cross, they cannot have the forgiveness of their sins. 
They can only have forgiveness for today if the Mass is done for them today. If Jesus is sacrificed again and again and again in the Mass, only in that way can they have salvation. Furthermore, the Mass teaches that the priest performs a miracle in the Mass. The priest, when he takes the bread over the altar and he says the words of institution, this is my body and this is my blood, they believe that the priest actually changes that bread into the literal, physical body of Jesus Christ. They call it a miracle. That the priest, as it were, takes Jesus down from the right hand of God onto the altar, and there in front of the altar, he no longer has bread, but he has the body of Jesus. He no longer has blood, uh, uh, wine, but the blood of Jesus. The real physical body and blood is there on the altar. Well then, if that's true, then the Mass is a sacred thing indeed, because God himself is there on the table, God in the flesh, transubstantiated, which is the word, into the bread and wine, into the body and blood of Christ. Beloved, that too is why the priest is so tremendously careful with those elements, because he knows if he drops that bread on the ground, he has dropped the body of Jesus on the ground. And if he spills even a drop of that wine, he's spilling the blood. Well, that can't happen. The body and blood of Jesus are sacred and holy. So they're so careful with the bread and the wine that, in fact, they have withheld the wine from the people and only given them bread out of the fear that the people might spill the blood of Christ. And they no longer use bread, really, but they use a hard wafer to make sure that there are no crumbs that fall to the ground because you don't want to lose any of the body of Christ. Beloved, that's not the sacredness of the Holy Supper. Because of that teaching, the Popish Mass actually leads people to believe that that bread is God, and therefore that bread ought to be worshipped. Literally, you are to come into church on Sunday morning and genuflect, put your knees on the ground, bow down before the bread, and worship it. That is not the sacredness of the Holy Supper. Indeed, the Mass is a desecration of the Lord's Supper. It's a desecration because, first of all, as the Catechism teaches us, it is a denial of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The scriptures in the book of Hebrews emphasize that Christ died once and for all on the cross as a sacrifice, never to be repeated. When they say that the Mass is a repetition of that sacrifice, it's a denial of the cross the sufficiency of the death of Christ on the cross. The Mass then leads people to put more trust in the Mass than in Christ, more trust in the priest than in Christ, more trust in the bread than in Christ. And the Mass teaches people to engage in idolatry because in the end, the bread is 
still bread and the wine is still wine, but they're worshiping it. It's idolatry, and we know from Scripture that idolatry is accursed. So the Mass is a desecration of the Holy Supper of our Lord. A pastor is not a priest. The table is not an altar. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. The sacredness of the Lord's Supper is rather that in this sacrament, the Lord Jesus serves to us, his people, holy, visible signs and seals that direct our faith to the wondrous cross. That's the sacredness of the supper. The supper is made up of bread and wine, which are ordinary things. We might eat bread in our ordinary life. We might drink wine in our ordinary life. They're very common. But when they are used in the Lord's Supper, in the church, by the minister, they become sacred. They become holy signs and seals. Because now they are a sacrament that is a means of grace directing our faith to the cross. Because it is in the cross, that one sacrifice of Christ, that we have all of our salvation. We don't need the repetition of the Lord's Supper to have the forgiveness of our sins. We have it in the cross. We have it by faith in Christ who died on the cross. The sacredness of the Supper is that it points us to that sacred head now wounded, those sacred hands and feet pierced, that sacred Son of God come down into our flesh who gave his blessed body to be broken and his blood to be shed on the cross for us to wipe away all of our sins and to give us everlasting life. That's the sacredness of the supper. These are holy signs and holy seals. And furthermore, the sacredness of the supper is that it directs our faith to the wondrous work of the Holy Ghost who engrafts us into Christ, who is now risen, ascended, and sitting at the right hand of God. The Holy Supper directs us to the wondrous work of the Spirit, grafting us into Christ so that we're crucified with Christ and we receive those benefits of the cross by faith. The sacrament directs us away from itself. It directs us upward, upward, higher, higher, into the heavenly heights to Jesus, who is there. Because as the Catechism teaches us, in his human nature, he is no more here on the earth. No pastor, no priest can bring Jesus down from heaven and change bread into him. He is always there until he comes again in his human nature. And the bread and the wine directs us to him, points us to him, so that we will not worship bread and wine, but we will worship God in Christ. The supper is a spiritual activity that directs our faith upward. And further still, the Lord's Supper is sacred because it is itself a foretaste 
of the everlasting marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper is a very wonderful thing. We must never lose sight of that. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the blessed reality in the parable of the wedding feast that this king has a son who's going to get married and so the king prepares a lavish supper made up of wonderful delicacies of food and drink and it's all on him it's all for free it's his gracious gift to the guests the holy supper of our lord is a foretaste and a picture of that supper of the marriage feast of the lamb that will be ours in glory that will be our joyful experience for all eternity all eternity will be this ongoing celebration like a wedding feast that will never come to an end because God has sent his son the one getting married to give his body and his blood for his bride on the cross so that he would prepare this lavish feast for her and for the guests. It's a marvelous dinner of salvation, a sumptuous banquet that we will enjoy in all of its fullness in the world to come. Revelation 19 was our call to worship. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory unto him, for the marriage supper of the Lamb is come. That's what we will sing when Jesus comes again. So the Lord's Supper, what is this? It's a foretaste of that glorious, everlasting reality. This is a spiritual exercise of Christians who are discerning the Lord's body. Those who cannot discern the Lord's body, such as little children, are not permitted to the supper yet because they don't yet understand what these signs and seals mean. Once they come to understand, once they are able to discern what this all means, even to some small degree, then they are confessing their faith and they come to the supper. The Lord's Supper is a sacred meal. It's not to be treated as something common and mundane. It's not to be treated as just any other meal in which we might have bread or wine. And it's not open to just anyone who wants to take hold of the bread and wine, regardless of their spiritual condition. So that, first of all, sacredness of the supper. Now, there's a proper and an improper way to come to the Lord's Supper. And let's focus for a while now on the parable in this parable, Jesus teaches us the truth that many are called to the marriage supper, but few are chosen. Meaning that there are many people who hear the preaching of the gospel and the call of the gospel. Not everybody hears it. There are many millions who don't hear it, but there are also many who do hear it. But even among those many who hear the preaching of the gospel and the call to come to the wedding feast, only few are chosen. Only few are elect from before the foundation of the world. In the parable, we see that the preaching of the gospel is different from the Lord's Supper in this crucial way. 
that the Lord's Supper is not open to everyone, but the preaching does go out to everyone. The preaching is to go forth from the church into the world. It is to be announced to everyone, everywhere, as much as the church is able. We may invite people, too, to this place to hear the preaching on any given Sunday. And we should do that. This is not a closed worship service. This is not just for believers and our children. The preaching is a public meeting in which the preaching goes forth to everyone gathered. And our calling as Christians is to invite our neighbors to come with us to hear that preaching. But not only that, we're also called to bring the gospel out into the world. As believers, to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily lives and to speak of the call to the wedding feast. But when that preaching goes out, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. There are many who hear the preaching, but they refuse to come. He speaks of that in the parable. They would not come, he says, verse 3. They were bidden, they were summoned by the king to come to the wedding feast of his son, but they would not come. They made all kinds of excuses. Verse 5, they made light of it. They went their ways. The one went to his farm, the other went to his merchandise. Some of them even murdered the messengers of the king. They wanted nothing to do with that wedding feast. The king is wroth with those people, we are told. And he sends out his armies, which is no doubt a picture of the angels, to destroy them, to cast them into hell. So there are those who hear the preaching, who reject it, who hate Christ, want nothing to do with him. They will perish. But there are others who hear that preaching, that call to come, and they try to come in their own way. They don't want to come in the way that the king calls them to come, not through the front door, but they try to sneak in through the back door. They don't want to come in and take the wedding garment that the king so graciously is giving to the guests, but they want to come in their own filthy rags. Now, they don't think of their clothes as filthy rags. They think they look pretty good in their clothes. They don't see any problem with these clothes. They say, well, why wouldn't the king be happy with these clothes? I can choose my own clothes for the wedding supper. So the king spots a man sitting there at the wedding feast, sitting in his own garments. And that refers to those who try to come to the kingdom of God through their own works, through their own righteousness, through their own worthiness, their own goodness. That's the attitude of that man. You look at the parable and you think, what a harsh treatment of him. He just came in his own clothes. Does he really have to wear the wedding garment? Is it really so important what he wears? But the point is, it's a parable and it's teaching us something. Obviously, it is important because the king destroys that man for wearing his own garment. So this refers to people who are either outwardly confessing works righteousness or 
hypocrites. And the Catechism mentions hypocrites and those who do not turn to God with a sincere heart. There may be those, and we wouldn't even know who they are, but those who in their hearts despise the wedding garment that God has provided through Christ, and they want to come, and they want to go to heaven wearing their own clothes. The Catechism warns us, the Scriptures warn us, that if we are such a hypocrite, pretending to be a Christian, but really in our hearts trusting in ourselves and thinking that we deserve it from our own goodness, then we are to be warned that if you come to the supper in that state wearing your own garment, you eat and drink judgment to yourselves. God is not mocked. Even though nobody in the church may know what is in your heart, God knows. If you are coming clothed in your own righteousness, or in the righteousness of Christ. The proper way of coming to the Lord's Supper is threefold, according to the Catechism, and according to the form as well, in the area of self-examination. And those three areas are really the three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. They're the, the three parts of experiential Christian religion, and those are the three things we must examine of ourselves in this week. In the first place, the Lord's Supper is instituted for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. In other words, those who have a sincerely humble, contrite, and repentant heart. The Lord's Supper is not for those who trivialize sin, whether their own sin or sins of others. Those who just laugh away their sin and say, well, that's not that big of a deal, really. The Lord's Supper is not for those who blame everyone else for their sins. It's not for those who confess some of their sins, but then hold on to some of their other sins, and they know that they have those sins, but they refuse to confess them. The Holy Supper is not for those who go through the motions of repentance, folding their hands and saying, forgive my sins, but who don't really care and who don't really grieve the fact that they have sinned against the holy God. They have provoked him by their sin. The Holy Supper is rather for those who are truly sorrowful over their sins. What Jesus calls the poor in spirit those who mourn, those who are peacemakers, merciful, those who are meek. Or as Paul puts it, those who have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Not those who have the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world worketh death. You can cry and weep all you want over the fact that your sins have made trouble in your life. That's not repentance. Repentance means that we are sorrowing over our sin. The Lord's Supper is those who is for those who know themselves to be poor sinners and unworthy guests. So let us examine ourselves. Is that what we understand about ourselves? Do we know that we are sinners? 
not just theoretically, but actually? Do we know specific sins in our lives? Specific sins. And are we sorry for those? And do we also know that we have secret sins? As the Psalm 19 says, there are secret faults within me. Do we know that because of our sinful nature, there's no doubt that there are sinful, uh, secret things inside of me that are wrong, that I can't confess because I don't even know about them. They're under the threshold of my consciousness, but I believe they're there and I'm sorry for those too. Do we know that we deserve to be cursed? We deserve the wrath of God. We're like all those people who refuse to come to the marriage feast. We don't want anything to do with it by nature. Do we know that we have nothing to bring? We don't have any clothes good enough for this wedding feast. We're at the mercy of the king to give us a wedding garment. That's the first. In the second place, the Lord's Supper is for those who believe in Christ, who trust in Christ, who believe that all their sins that they are aware of and all of their sins that they are not aware of and all of their remaining infirmities, all of their weaknesses, the weakness of their faith, the fact that they're not good enough, their faith isn't good enough, their love isn't good enough, their obedience isn't good enough, they're not good enough in any way, yet they look to Christ and they trust in Christ that it's all forgiven through his blood. It's all wiped out. He has earned for them a perfect righteousness and he wraps it around us as that wedding garment so that we put our trust in him. We look to Jesus. Let us examine our faith. Are we walking in the faith clinging to Christ as our only righteousness and our only worthiness. And then in the third place, the Lord's Supper is for those who have a sincere desire to grow in faith and to grow in holiness. A thankful desire is generated by the knowledge of Christ in their hearts so that they truly, deeply, sincerely want to grow. The Lord's Supper is not for those who have a complacent attitude, who have a careless attitude, who believe that they have peaked in sanctification and there's nothing more to do, there's no more growth needed. The Lord's Supper is for those who know their sins and want to change, want to grow, want to put sin out of their lives. And they want to because they have a thankful desire thankfulness for the free gift, the lavish wedding supper, the free wedding gift, the invitation. Let's examine ourselves in that too, whether we have that thankful desire. And now this. I said in the introduction, this is also a good time to be reminded not only of the sacredness of the supper, not only of the proper way of partaking, but also this. This is not designed, dearly beloved brethren and sisters, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful. 
when you hear all of that, it sounds like this high bar or this high standard of requirement that we have to do. We have to check off these boxes. We have to fulfill all these conditions or we can't come. Catechism, the, the forum says, no. It is not intended to discourage, to deflate, to deject the contrite, humble hearts of faithful believers. We do not come to the supper. We do not march and prance our way up here and sit down around the table to testify to everybody, see, I have no sins. If we do, that's an abomination. We come to the Lord's Supper to testify thereby that we are sinners. We're unworthy sinners. We're not good enough. None of it is good enough. But we cling to Jesus for dear life. And we want to serve him. That's all. We cling to him and we want to serve him. So we examine ourselves. Do we? Do we cling to Jesus? Do we want to serve him? Then we come. Finally, we must note, too, from the Catechism and Scripture that there's a duty of the Christian church to guard the Lord's Supper. The Catechism mentions that. It asks the question whether those who are unbelieving and ungodly now, it's not talking about hypocrites, because we don't know what's in their heart. It's talking about those who declare themselves by their confession and life to be unbelieving and ungodly. In other words, their fruits are visible. Their fruits are known. Is it okay to admit them to the supper, Catechism asks? And the answer is no. It is the duty of the Christian church to guard the table and to exclude from the table those who are such. Why? Because we saw the sacredness of the supper. The Catechism puts it negatively. Because if we would do that, if we would allow anyone to come to the table who wants to, regardless of their spiritual condition, then we would profane the covenant of God. The word profane means to desecrate or to make it common and mundane. Sure, come on up. That's to profane the supper. And if we profane the supper, then we kindle the wrath of God against the whole congregation. One of the marks of the true church is the pure or proper administration of the sacraments. When we open up the Lord's Supper, we show our low view of the Lord's Supper. And God is not pleased with that. He will give that church over, whether slowly or quickly, to apostasy. And eventually cut them off in their generations and take away the candlestick. Because they did not show any care in dealing with the Lord's Supper. There are those who practice open communion. We practice close or supervised communion. Open communion is the practice that says anybody who wants to come can come and take the Lord's Supper. 
And I suppose the motivation for that is that they want to be welcoming. It's a good thing. It's good to want to be welcoming. But they welcome anybody in the church and anybody who comes through the doors, not only to the, to the pews, to hear the preaching, not only into the fellowship of the church and the life of the church, but all the way into the Lord's Supper. That's too far. The Lord's Supper is a sacred meal for those who confess and show by their lives that they are Christians. We ought to be a welcoming congregation. Are we? I hope that we are, and I think that we are. That means that we welcome visitors who come through those doors, who sit here with us. We welcome them warmly. We show them, tell them, we're glad that they're here. We want them to be here. We want them to continue. We want them to hear the preaching. We invite them back, and we invite them back again. But there has to be a patience for visitors who come, that they will listen, that they will hear the preaching for a long time until it becomes clear to themselves in their own minds and in their own consciences that this is where I belong. This is what I confess. This is what I believe. This is how I desire to live. I'm one in this church. And then they will make a confession, a public confession of the Reformed faith. They're not going into a a Roman Catholic church. They're not making confession of the Romish religion or into a Methodist church or into a, a Baptist church. They're coming into a Reformed church, and they need to know what the Reformed church stands for and make that confession. When the elders guard the table that way, we have to understand they're following the rule of the church order in Article 61. And this rule is simply reflecting the scriptural teaching that I'm just bringing. And it says this, None shall be admitted to the Lord's Supper except those who, according to the usage of the church with which they unite themselves, have made a confession of the Reformed religion besides being reputed to be of a godly walk, without which those who come from other churches shall not be admitted. There has to be a confession of the Reformed religion. And then the doors are wide open to us to come to the supper together. The elders have a very important duty. Christ places into their hands the keys of the kingdom of heaven, to open and to shut, to bind and to loose. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not pleased when elders don't use the keys properly. When they say, well, the door is always open. No, the keys are to open and to shut. And it's a very high and important task. They have to exclude some, and they have to admit some. Who are they to exclude? members of the church who are walking in sin. They may be members of the church who've made a confession of the Reformed religion, but if they're walking in sin impenitently, that's discipline, that's Christian discipline, one of the other marks of the church. But also they are to exclude non-members who have only just come into our midst or 
who are still in the process of growing and learning and listening and hearing until they make that confession of the Reformed religion. The elders are to exclude them, but they exclude with the hope of including. The hope is always to include, and if elders don't have that hope, there's something missing. It's not just about excluding, it's about including. We want to include them because we want them to repent of their sin. And so the elders have to work with the individual to see their sin, to humble themselves, to show amendment of life. And the elders want visitors to come and eventually to make the confession of the Reformed religion as well as the young people of the church so that they will be included, not excluded. But that is the task of the elders, to open and to shut. The Lord's Supper is a sacred and blessed spiritual supper for believers, a foretaste of the blessed marriage supper of the Lamb. So let us be glad and rejoice, as we heard in our call to worship. And next week, Lord willing, let us partake of these sacred signs and seals in remembrance of him. Amen. Our Father, we give thanks to thee for instruction from thy word. We pray, Lord, that thou would bless what we have heard, help us to understand all that is good and true. Help us, Lord, to have a desire to eat and drink at that marvelous supper of Christ. Whether we are young and have not yet made confession of faith, whether we are visitors and are becoming closer to the church and desire to become members someday, or if we are walking in sin, that we would be led to repentance. May we, Lord, have a desire to come clothed in the wedding garments of Christ's righteousness, that we may be comforted as we are directed to his one sacrifice. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.